Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brandt. In this episode, we're discussing SST-46, Saccharin Trust, World Broken. And this one is a first for the podcast on a number of fronts, so really look forward to discussing this one. It's a really unique release on the SST roster, so I don't know, Brant, I mean... How's it a first on a number of fronts? Well, I think it's the first live improv record. Eh, October Faction. Oh, fuck. (laughs) Okay, hang on. It's the first good one. (laughs) Yes, I was just going to say that. I was going to say that. How about the first live improv record with Mike Watt on bass? Uh, Criminy? That's not on SST. Okay. (laughs) And never mind. Let's get to the spiels. Never mind. Hit me with a spiel. You want me to go? Absolutely. Uh, So three EPs, Ryan, I wanted to ask if you've heard yet, because I know you like a couple of these bands. Uh Uh-oh. Failure in the future. Have you heard that yet? Is it a new EP? Yes. It's not a full length? Nope, it's the first of three EPs they're releasing this year, and then they're releasing a full length as well. Oh, okay, I did not know that. Thank you. Yeah, it's called In the Future. Quicksand, Trip Tech Continuum, Record Store Day release. Got it? Got it. It's pretty good, eh? Yep, next. Uh, Bush Tetras, do you like them? You've mentioned them to me before, and I've never taken the time to check them out. What are they about again? Uh, They're like a New York city like post-punk almost i'd like they're old i, I think yeah. they're reunited they were around for like the no wave scene maybe yeah they have a new ep on a pretty cool label called wharf cat records they've got some good stuff it's called take the fall it's like a four song ep it's pretty good what does it sound like relative to their no wave 80 stuff you know good better produced it's like uh i don't know i think you'd like it it's like gang of four-esque maybe okay I feel I feel like I've looked into Bush Tetras before, but it just hasn't caught me. Yeah. But check, I'll try it again. Check it out. Yeah. Oh, and I saw that Trotsky Ice Pick has a new single out. They do. Is that one of your spiels? Did I scoop a scoop a spiel on you? It's a bit of a spiel scoop, but oh. uh I'll, but I'll wait. Kay. Keep going. Okay, I got I've got a live show review and I think maybe you do too. Oh, what did you go see? Did you go see Kamazi Washington? I sure did, yep. And? Well, I don't want to rub it in, because I know you uh, were wishing that you could have could have seen that, but man. It was insane, it right? It was insane how good it was. Yep. So his band is just fucking nuts players. Two drummers, uh, a trombone player that's insane. His bass player, Miles Mosley. Is just yeah. a ripping bass player. He's got this really great uh, keyboardist, like Moog synth guy. And about two songs into the set, he uh, says, "I've got a special surprise for you tonight." And he brings out his dad, Ricky Washington. And uh, he's like, "This is the guy who taught me everything I know." And his dad comes out for the rest of the set and tears shit up. It was really fun to watch because everybody takes extended solos. For me, the highlight was watching Kamasi Washington hang back and just groove while his dad was tearing shit up. And then watching his dad, Ricky Washington, like you could just see the pride all over him while he was just standing back and just admiring his son. It was an insane show. Yeah, I'm super jealous. I'm going to catch him next time he comes through, that's for sure. Yeah. 
I'm uh, and I've got uh, his new quadruple LP on order. Can't wait till that arrives. I've been listening to it nonstop since uh, since I saw him. It's it's really ah, good. Quit rubbing it in. Yeah, that's it for spiel's. What do you got? Well, my spiel is is kind of a a show review as well. I went to go see the urinals brand. Yeah, tell me about and, it. Wow! Don't leave anything out. <laughs> Well, I've missed them before, so I was really glad to finally catch them this time when they came through town. And I took the opportunity to go and speak with the guys at the merch booth, right? Hey, before we get that, like, what's the deal with the urinals? I don't really know their history super well. They haven't been together this whole time, have they? No, they formed originally in 1978, yep. Southern California. Um, John Talley Jones formed the band with Kale Johnson and Kevin Barrett. And John Talley Jones still runs that label, Happy Squid Records, that has that Keats Rides a Harley compilation that we mentioned a couple episodes ago. Oh, they, they're still active? Happy Squid Records? Yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, you just wait, Brant. Or is it reactivated? I would, I don't know specifically whether it was reactivated or just dormant for a while. But, anyways, John Talley Jones. Is that Kel the Johnson. guy? Is that the guy that's in uh, Hundred Flowers too? Yeah. So right. John, Kel, and Kevin were all in Hundred Flowers as well. Okay. And Kel started Trotsky Icepick with Vitas Matari, and uh, and then John Telly Jones eventually joined Trotsky Icepick as well. Vitas uh, was in the last forever. Okay. And I think and he produced some stuff we've talked about too. Lots of stuff. Yeah. He's produced a ton of stuff was he double nickels or is that somebody else no that's ethan james sorry and kevin barrett from the urinals was also in another band that i'm a big fan of called god in the state they have a 12 inch out on happy squid records called ruins is that pretty new no so it's new and digital so god in the state yeah it finally came out digital on Happy Squid Records, like on Bandcamp, but that's an original uh, Happy Squid Records 12-inch from way back, or I guess it's an LP, that one. But if anyone has any of the old Happy Squid Records stuff, like the first Angst record, or the first 100 Flowers record, or this God in the State record, you'll know that it comes out on kind of this brown cardboard kind of jacket, silk screeny. Uh, It looks really kind of like... I don't know, like a, a one-off pressing type thing. Kind of like um, what uh, Amphetamine Reptiles does? Um, Kind of, kind of. Uh, the artwork is a little bit more simplistic okay. on the old uh, Happy Squid stuff, but, I mean, they don't have Tom Hazelmeyer doing the artwork, I suppose. Anyways, urinals. I went up and, and uh, talked with uh, John Talley Jones, also Kevin Barrett, um, and their new guitarist, Rob Roberge, or Roberge, I, I'm not sure how how he pronounces it uh, specifically. Rob is actually a, uh, he's not the original guitarist for Urinals, uh, but he's on their most recent album. Is, called he a, Next is he a young guy? No, 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 no. He's a, he's an old guy. Well, I don't want to call him old, but I mean, everyone on the Urinals are as old as my dad, probably. Yep. And uh, anyways, Rob is a, a professor and an author. He also has a number of, novels um that you can look up i'm i'm not much of a a fiction guy but i'm gonna probably check out some of rob's books hmm. so everyone should check that out he's on 
the 2015 album by the urinals called next year in marion bad he is the guitarist on that record which is really good but to answer your question urinals started in 78 then they kind of turned into 100 flowers then that band kind of disbanded turned into trotsky ice pick john talley jones uh joined as a lead singer in trotsky ice pick later on and then uh you know many years later the urinals started up again okay and that's kind of uh the the incarnation that came out um with the last two records by the urinals anyways saw them and they were awesome like they were really really good they played new songs they played the old songs you know like ak 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 and i'm a bug and surfing with the shaw like the classics but lots of stuff off their new records um, they even played a hundred flowers song. And anyways, when I'm talking with John Talley Jones, he mentioned how Trotsky ice pick has got a new single out okay. and, uh, everyone should go and check that out. hundred flowers has a new digital single out. Oh, wow. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of a protest single. And for those who don't know, hundred flowers has like kind of one LP and a whole bunch of really hard to find singles. They were all eventually collected on a cd that's really hard to find called 100 years of pulchritude but in the red is going to release kind of a second collection of 100 flowers and if you've got that most recent collection by 100 flowers and you get this new one coming out by uh, in the red then you'll have them all which is great oh, cool. uh, urinals urinals has got new stuff coming uh, we were talking about Happy Squid Records, and and all, another thing about Happy Squid Records that's kind of relevant to this podcast, I mean, when I was talking with John, he kind of described them a bit as like a farm team for SST because, of course, Angst, um, Leaving Trains, and who else eventually ended up on Trotsky Ice Pick with, you know, members from Urinals, 100 Flowers. But we've mentioned on this podcast before that band The Rub. Yep. They were on New Alliance, weren't they? They might have been on New Alliance. I don't know for sure, but they definitely started out on Happy Squid, and they've got new material coming. Oh, wow. As well as another band that John is in called Vina Cava has got new material coming. I think I the know, rub I maybe came up in the in the uh, post, not post Mersh, the Project Mersh episode. Is that dude that played horns on that? Is Was he in the rub? Crane. Yeah. Maybe it's Crane. I can't remember. I can't either. <laughs> I don't know. Anyways, I mean, the urinals were awesome. Um, Kevin Barrett is like just a killer drummer, like a metronome, right? Reminds me a lot of like kind of Wire Gang of Four drumming. Really good. John Talley Jones can sing, plays a mean P bass with a pick. And uh, Rob Roberge, he actually used to be in, uh, like he's been in a few bands. And I can't remember the name of his first band from when he used to live on the East Coast. It's like a cowpunk band, but anyways, he's a deadly guitarist, like very tasteful mm-hmm. and totally fit the band. So it was great, and the openers were really great too. Um, there was this one band that opened up that were super interesting called Leather Jacuzzi. Oh, I know them. I've heard yeah. of them, I mean. Yeah, yeah, they were cool. They were really cool. I'm super pumped about the urinals and getting into Trotsky Ice Pick eventually on this show. There's nothing like watching old dudes just kill it, hey? Yeah, they definitely make you feel pretty pretty weak. It's inspiring. Yeah. Oh, I was I felt so pumped after yeah. that. Anyways, that's all my spiels. Okay, great stuff this week. Yeah. I'm going to have to check out uh, that 100 Flowers digital single. I like that band a lot. 
Yeah, that digital single is like a kind of a Trump protest song. Kind of like that Descendants one, maybe. A little bit. Well, it's definitely, it's definitely topical. Yep. Should All we right, uh, should we do uh, World Broken? Let's get World Broken. History lesson part one. Hey Ryan, before we go any further, I'll just uh, mention that we have a special guest this week. Joe Biza is going to be on the podcast. Right on. Yeah, we've got. Joe Biza, part one. Then next week we have Tom Tricoli for the Tom Tricoli's dog. And then for Saccharine Trust, We Became Snakes. We've got Joe Biza, part two. You know what they call that, hey? A three-banger? You're catching on, bud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially when you set yourself up for your own jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> So, anyways, I suppose this is the second live improv record that we reviewed after the October Faction record. And I'll, I must admit, I haven't listened to this one for a long time, and I never go back to it. And I remember that when I listened to it a while back, didn't really catch me, you know, it didn't really, you know, interest me, I guess. This time around... I got to admit, I surprisingly enjoyed it. I thought that they were, like, the playing is really on point. It's actually a pretty cohesive jam. Yeah. We'll get to the uh, interview right away here, but Joe Biza really gives a lot of credit to Joe Carducci for kind of, you know, egging them on, I think. Yeah. To do this. Did you come a lot come up with anything kind of about what what was up with Saccharin Trust at this time? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't know what you found, but this era is surprisingly under-documented in, when I was looking into it. Yeah. Well, I asked Joe Carducci a little bit about it after interviewing Joe because, you know, I knew he... Did he produce it? I can't remember. Does he get a yep. credit as a producer? So I didn't really realize how much of a hand he had in it until after we talked to Joe Biza. So I, I kind of followed up with Joe with a few very specific questions that kind of were born out of the interview. And I think this, the one quote that I'll read you right now might give you a little sense of what was up with Saccharine Trust at the time. Uh, Joe Carducci says, I was spending some time trying to think of what we could do to get better radio and press responses to Saccharine Trust and St. Vitus, since they were touring bands that hadn't made a jump in sales or, pro had, or they didn't have profile like Minutemen, Meat Puppets, and Husker Du. We didn't get them up to 5,000 sales until 86, I guess. I knew it would take Saccharin Trust a long time to work in a new bass player when Mark Hodson left. Actually, Bob Fitzer fit in quicker than I thought. It had taken a full year to work in Mark and Tony Cicero together before the band could record Surviving You Always. So, as they had been doing short improvs during their live sets, I thought maybe they could, do, could improvise a whole set and record it. McCabe's Guitar Shop had a nice little recording studio two doors down, Tempo Sound. We, we returned there for Angst DC3 albums that you could snake cables to and do a live set. I didn't anticipate that Fitzer wouldn't want to improv as he was so damn good. I thought he was jazz enough, but I guess he was more of a prog guy. But it was fortunate that we had Mike Watt to ask to sub in. Mike was always there to encourage Saccharin Trust at different stages of the band and he, he liked the idea for them. And once recorded, Mike spent the time on breaking down the two 30-minute jams, 
which filled two two-inch reels of tape. So the shape of world, world Broken is Mike's, working from the musical movements and Jack's words. After it, Mike produced We Became Snakes, and they seemed to get that album together much quicker than I feared it might take. So it kind of sounds like maybe they were spending a lot of time working in the new rhythm section, and maybe that, you know, it sounds like it took them a year to get the rhythm section together to record the last studio album. Is it a completely different rhythm section? I think it is, hey, on this one? On this record? No, Tony Cicero. Same drummer. On, uh, same drummer. Okay. But, I mean, it's right to say, though, that Surviving You Always, there is a bit of a gap between Pagan Icons and that one, and the rhythm section is just insane on that one. And it it stands to reason that it took them a while to get worked up. Interesting, though, that you know Mike had to sub in on this record because I was looking at the timing of this record and where Mike Watt was at because I never really listened to this record and really focused on the bass playing. And just think about like this record was recorded in June of 85, right? Right. And then, and then three way tie is recorded August, September of 85. And then D Boone passes away in December of 85 and the next thing you know, there's fire hose. And what struck me about Watts playing on this record is that it really uh, foreshadowed, for me anyways, that a lot of the sounds in fire hose. I don't know if you picked up on anything like that. Well, I wrote some notes on some of the tracks, but yeah, I definitely wrote like a f- on a few of the tracks that it's his playing is like classic Mike Watt. Like you can really hear. If, if somebody oh, yeah. played it for me, it was like, can you tell me who this bass player is? I would be able to tell, I think. Yeah, 100%. You know. It also, his playing foreshadows a lot of his sound on his solo records as well, is what I kind of thought. Well, like he's he, real, he, he plays really some slap into- bass on this, which he doesn't do much of in Minutemen. No, there's some slapping and popping, which really stands out in places too. Yeah. And it, it it works. Like like I said, this this record never really caught me before, but this time around... It really struck me that it's it's actually hangs together. Um, I've got one quote. I was looking around like I couldn't find anything in Wailing of a Town, that book on uh, San Pedro punk. Even the the trilzine that you got for me, Henry's essay on Sacred Trust doesn't mention this at all. It's it's a good essay, but it doesn't really give us more no. much to. It, it doesn't no. have a lot of facts or anything in it. It's just, no. The, the best quote on this record that I was able to find is actually in that Flex book that I've mentioned before. Right. And um, when reviewing this album, it says, and, and I agree with it fully, it says, everything is on a high technical level. Free jazz aficionados might rejoice, but fans of the Pagan Icons EP will find that there is nothing left of that complex, sophisticated, and yet powerful art punk sound. So I agree that this doesn't sound like pagan icons, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I also don't necessarily agree that this is this is free jazz. This is more improv than free jazz. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, but I agree that the playing is also on a high technical level. I think uh, Joe's playing, Mike's playing, Tony's playing are off the charts on this record, and uh, Jack's vocals are... They're just insane. Like, it's hard to even 
figure out oh, his vocal going. his vocals are what make it you know yeah better real. It, better than average i would say i mean not yeah. to take away from the playing the playing's great and i i will get to it in a minute with the interview with joe but I can't remember if this is going to be in this part or the next part, but at some point I ask him about his, uh, you know, his style and his influences and how he started playing. And, it, you know, he really downplays it like he's, you know, like I, I asked him if he has a jazz background, basically, and he, you know, he's completely self-taught and, I mean, his playing's pretty jazzy. I agree. And, uh, and Jack Brewer's words are, I mean, it's real poetry, right? Yeah, totally. Want to hear from Joe? Yeah, I'll just preface it by saying we tried really hard to get the sound quality of this interview uh, happening, and we were having some 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 troubles with it. So I hope it comes through okay. All right, so we're talking to Joe Biza today. Joe, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so we're talking about the World Broken album. Now that's this is a live album. I'm wondering, was this planned to be released? Was that the plan when you recorded it? Yeah, it was Joe Carducci's idea. Yeah, Saccharin didn't record very many records, so uh, I think SST was trying to get us to do another one, you know, around that time, and uh, Joe Carducci came up, came up with the idea to do an improvised thing live for, for a record. The improvised shows, was this something you guys did more than once? Uh, we kind of did a little bit of improvising, but it's Never, never anything like that, you know. Um, that was, yeah, a little uh, of a bit of a stretch for us at that time. And I was always in, into uh, improvising, so it was something that I would like, to, I wanted to do. And the other guys sort of adjusted to it, you know. So yeah, it wasn't something uh, we normally did. And at that time, we just got a new bass player, Bob Pitzer. Right. And uh, Earl, Earl was playing bass with us, and uh, he left to join the circus first. So uh, Bob was a friend of Tony Fisher, the drummer we had then. So he just sort of segued right into it. You know, he's a friend of the drummer, and he knew him. And he was a very good bass player, a really young guy. I think he was only 17 at the time. And he was really influenced by uh, Jocko Pistorius and that kind of music, but he was into uh, rock music, too, so, you know. And uh, he, was, <laughs> he was supposed to be uh, uh, on the record. And we, you know, Joe uh, Carducci said, okay, let's, you know, he talked to me and Jack, and he said, okay, let's try it out. So we didn't talk to those guys about it being improvised, so we just went into the rehearsal, you know, one day and said, let's just improvise, you know, so we were going to try it out, you know. Yeah. So, oh, really? Okay, so Tony and, and Bob, started playing and we just played and it sounded pretty good, you know, the rehearsal. But uh then when I we told Bob that we planned to do an album that way and record it live, I think Bob got a little scared and he didn't want to do it. He did his first record, you know, you know Yeah, I was gonna <laughs> say he probably didn't have a ton of experience yet if he was that young. But he sounded really good at the rehearsal. That's that's you know, like, wow because I, I wanted to hear how it would sound, you know. Right. So we rehearsed, and I thought, this is going to be perfect. This is great, you know? But, uh, once they found out it was going to be a record, they sort of felt funny about it and or got a little nervous, I guess. And Bob just backed out completely. He wasn't going to do it. And 
Tony, he's kind of tough. He said, yeah, I'll do it. I don't think you like the idea. <laughs> so we didn't have a bass player. I said, okay, well, we can't do it without. So I had to call SST and talk to Joe and tell him that we weren't going to be able to do this. And Joe was studying all up with his project, you know. He recorded it at McCabe's guitar shop there in, in Santa Monica. So, so, so was it Joe that recommended bringing Mike Watt in? No. Joe says uh, to me, uh, if we can just do it as a trio, you know, mm-hmm. without the bass. If he's really, he, he had really kind of, you know, he, he really hard to set it up already. I and mean, I think he even had the mic set up and the engineers and everything. So it was sort of a last kind of minute pull-up for him for it to stop. But he said, can you please just do it as a trio? And I was talking to Joe over the phone at the SAC office. He's there. I said, no, I'm sorry, you can't do it. No, 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 no. Oh, please. No, no, we can't do it now. I'm sorry, Joe, no. And then all of a sudden, the phone, another line got picked up from the phone. And it was Mike. He said, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> and Mike was working at SSP then, you know, so he was at the office. He was listening to what was happening. He picked up one of the lines and said, oh, I'll play that. I'll play bass. If you want me to play bass, I'll play bass. And I said, what? Oh, wow, Mike, what? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, sure. You want to do it? Let's do it, you know? Because that's how Mike got in. He just sort of, it was just sort of impromptu. I think Mike just heard Joe and me talking to me and just thought, well, I'll just jump in and play bass then, you know? Did you have time to rehearse with Mike? Uh, afterwards, but I think for SSC it was a weird thing to do to have an improvised record, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was sort of an odd thing, and some of the other guys were saying, what kind of thing is this? You know what? It was strange. And, uh, yeah, then, uh, once Mike joined up, and then we started to rehearse the day, just improvising together. You know, so, yeah, we did rehearsals, and, uh, not that many. It was kind of a conflict, because, uh, with the Tony and, and, uh, Mike playing together, it was some, Kind of friction, you know, with the playing. And then they played no comments at rehearsals, and I, I was wondering, what's going on? And, uh, it was, uh, I guess Mike was thinking, hey, you just changed that pattern, and now I was playing this thing, and now you're, you know, it's kind of like, we aren't really, they aren't really, you know, not really improvising, really, just playing something. You know, Here's my part, you know. So there was a little bit of friction there, and then we kind of, Worked it out and kept rehearsing. It was pretty good, good and bad, good and bad, you know. So, you know, we said, we finally figured, I figured we ready to go, you know, if the bass coming up. Jack wanted to wear a tuxedo, so he got us all rent tuxedos to play, you know, on stage. <laughs> <laughs> so, sound check, and then the engineers on this office, because I guess they the cage out of studio and now so can record in the back room. Some of the stuff you did in rehearsal, then would that have been kind of used a little bit in the live recording? No, nothing's used. Re- no, rehearsal is improvised, and so nothing's used. Yeah, not that so I com- know of. For me, at least, I don't know. Maybe Mike said, "I'm going to use this riff again, my bass riff. I'll try it again." Or yeah. Tony might have some ideas. I don't know things I would try, but there was there were no uh, parts or anything, you know. Okay. Yeah, there was kind of a conflict with the sound check as well because. I think it almost, it, I, the sound check is just, you know, there was sort of friction, like I said, between Tony and Mike. And then with the sound check, it just kind of turned their head, and then 
funny kind of threw a stick down and walked out the door, out the back door, you know. Mm. And out in the back parking lot there. And Mike, you know, me and Jack, he's like, you know, they went upstairs or something. And then I went out to talk to Tony and, uh, you know, because Mike said, uh, he keeps changing everything, he keeps changing. You know, I, I, I'm trying to play with him, but he keeps changing. He keeps constantly <laughs> changing things, you know. Wow, okay. And Tony keeps kind of out there, kind of angry, you know, because he's kind of a hothead. Anyway, so I went out to talk to him, I remember that. And I said, hey, man, come on, come on, we had a bit of talk. He said, I'm not forgetting this up. He's playing drums, he says, uh, so you, you know who I play drums for? When I play the drums, you know who I'm playing the drums for? I said, oh, no, no, uh, the audience, I don't know. No. They're the drummers in the audience. <laughs> it was sort of a strange attitude, you know. I go, wow, you know. Well, I gotta show them what I have. That's what he said to me. I'm gonna do this thing and that thing, and I don't want to stick to the same thing. You know, so I had to convince him that you know, come on, you know, we're doing this improvised thing and thought about that. So I had right. a half hour talk with him in the, in the alleyway, and the, you know, it's, just, it's kind of dramatic in a way. But then he kind of calmed down about it after we talked, and he kind of came to an agreement. And then uh, when he played, it's fine, you know, at that point. And then I played well together, and it just sort of settled down, you know. And that was it, you know. I could get it, you can play again like that, you know. When the tapes were done, how much editing happened afterwards? Like, are these are these completed versions, or did you take, you know, did you have to edit them down into into sections that you could use on the album? Like, were they longer? Oh yeah, we had to do a lot of editing. So there were, yeah, we 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 were in the studio editing, yeah. So. Parts of it that were kind of cool and, and used that, you know. Because it was a longer thing, the performance. I don't remember how much longer, but yeah, it had to be edited. Yeah. And decisions had to be made where the edits were going to be and which parts were going to be used between all of us. Now, what, ab- so, what about Jack's lyrics? Were those, did he have notes with him or were those improvised as well? No, he had notes. But he, the way he used them was improvised. You know, he had notebooks and pages, and he would say some things from the page, and then just throw the book down on the floor and just say some things without reading. And then he'd grab a page and look at it and throw it down, grab another page and read some that. So it was just sort of whatever you, you know he felt like doing. You know, it was kind of you know you go, oh, he was just something. I'm going to read this thing. Just take it out and read it right at the right moment, you know. Or he just started to say things without reading. So, do you know like what was like what was he reading at the time? Do you like do you know who maybe some of his influences were? Like I know there's like some some religious imagery in in his lyrics and. Yeah, I think that's after his religious thing. Post the post religious period, I would call it. Maybe he was reading more poets. I think when he did the religious thing, he was trying to find a direction with his writing. And there was some, or it was moving out of that, that period. And there were certain poets he was reading, and I'm not exactly sure who. I think he was more influenced by poetry at that point, or just starting to be influenced by poetry, certain poets. Okay. But yeah, I think with Jack, I, I mean, I don't know. He, 
but I, I had the impression that he was just pushing the boundaries for himself and trying to find the inspiration and influence, you know, searching for that, you know. Okay. Uh, the album, it, it says Mixing by Glenn. I'm going to probably screw up his last name. Aloop? Alep? Was was he like your sound, uh, your like sound tech, or or who who's he? Did he work for the venue? I, I you know I don't remember. He might have. Let me think about this. Maybe so because I think uh, we might have gone back to the to the studio in the at, at McCabe's and mixed it there. Oh, there was a studio there. Well, they had uh, they had a recording studio there off to the side. You know where they record live things. You know. Oh, okay. I assumed that you you brought the, the equipment case. in. No, they they had they had I believe they had equipment there. They've done it was a place that was known for. I mean, they had done some recordings in the past, right. performances there. That's probably why Joe chose that place to do it. It was an interesting idea from Joe, you know, to do that, and for Sacron Trust to do it of all bands. Yeah. Yeah, Joe but, did the uh, cover art as well. Yes, he did. Yeah, so it's kind of his. It was his project in a way, his idea. What about you know? the liner notes by Richard Meltzer? Who who sourced that? Maybe Joe and Mike. I know Mike like Richard quite a bit. His writing, maybe Joe as well. I'm not sure they, they organized that. One of those guys. Yeah, they, you know, Joe pretty much uh, ran ran the whole project. So. Any decision was his, you know. He said, "Let's do this," and he asked us. He said, "Sure," you know. And what what and was the reception up. to it? Did people like it? Did I don't really know. I'm not sure how it was received. I don't remember reviews or anything like that. Now, when it came out, I know there were some good reviews from certain writers. Pretty smart, you know. But, oh, it's cool. This guy liked it. Great. I remember reading. Oh, so and so liked that. You know. And there were some people there at the performance, too. Certain writers were there, certain type of people like that. They come back, you know, maybe Joe invited them, they came to see it, you know. I don't recall any negative reviews. It's just interesting to me, this is kind of the point in time where people really point to SST as kind of shifting their sound away from, you know, more towards jazz. And even your band was... I would say this is, I mean, you always had jazzy elements, but this is definitely a shift towards like, you know, like the rhythm section, like where they were jazz guys, hey? Well, I was Mike, and if you're a jazz guy, and Tony, you Tony liked progressive rock, but you would say he liked jazz, and Mike has his style, you know. I, I was really influenced by jazz, and I like Miles Davis and, the, you know, the electric Miles Davis stuff, you know. Yeah, at that point, so I was really uh, into that kind of thing. Is that what you were into when you first started playing guitar? I think back way back when I first started with with Akron, it wasn't so much jazz. Although I listened to jazz, it might have been um, trying to find a, a different approach to playing. That's what it was. So they weren't so much influenced by. I mean, there was influenced by outside sources, but I was. I was trying to find another way to do something, you know. I was studying visual art just at a community college, you know. And then I decided, ah, yeah, I'm trying to move on to another school, but I took a break from school and I met Jack and 
I thought I would try to do music as a project and an art project in a way. You know, so to me, uh, in my early time in Sacramento was, a, was an art experiment, you know, trying to be a non, he's taking, approaching music as a non-musician. <laughs> so I wasn't really a musician, I'm just some person using the guitar in a way, you know. Yeah. Although I knew some things, I knew some chords and things I learned, but that's, that was my approach, not being a musician. You were all self, all self-taught. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, self-taught and learning on my own through books and yeah. So that's that's how it started for me. And uh, the jazz part would come in, but I, I mean, I, I'm not a jazz player, you know, so I couldn't really do the things. Uh, you know, they were, you know, here on jazz records, but I kind of emulate uh, the, the mood of it. You know, that's kind of what I was trying to do, emulating the. the the mood of the music or something, there's something about it, you know, in my own way. That's sort of what I did with the guitar or later on. That's what I was trying to do at that time, too. You know, I couldn't play like Miles Davis or any of those people in that kind of group. But, you know, I tried to create a sound that might be something like that, you know, from a primitive source. <laughs> you know, so that's kind of what it was back then, me. Well, there you have it from the man himself. Thanks very much, Joe. Yeah. Uh, we hope to have more people tune in, obviously, for part two of that on the We Became Snakes episode. Yeah, it was really fun talking to him. It's a really, really interesting guy. Humble, too. Yeah. Anyways, should we get to history lesson part two? Yeah. History lesson part two. Where do you want to start, Brent? Well, do you want to start with the cover? Yeah, sure. Because I've got another Joe Carducci quote, because he did the cover. I never realized that until I was reading the notes this week, and um, that's a mind blower. I'll read you what he said about it. As for the cover, when Jack told me what the album would be called, I thought the art I had would fit that, so I asked Joe to come by and look at it. I may have showed it to Jack first, since he was around SST more often, but he usually deferred to Joe on cover art. Joe came by and liked it. Probably was surprised I could draw anything. Hmm. I'll say that when I saw his art for the October Faction album, I thought he should have drawn all the Saccharin covers. Buzzer Howell cover art is pretty good, but the October Faction covers are great, I think. The World Broken Art dates back to my wooden table up at Systematic in 1980-81, on which I used to doodle while on the phone to shops. I regretted leaving the tabletop behind, so I thought I'd take a large sheet and just begin collecting doodles onto something I could keep. So it was done on the back of a sheet of Posh Boy Louie Louie 45 sleeve art. Hmm. Three picture sleeves were printed on one sheet before cutting and assembling. It was drawn while SST was at Phelan Ave in Redondo Beach in 82-3, where I was alone when, the Black, when Black Flag was on tour and Mugger, Mugger still going with them. Hard to imagine drawing it over time on that large sheet but there, but I guess I did. Then we knew Richard Meltzer liked Saccharin Trust and Minutemen and SST generally, so we asked him to write liner notes based on Mike's first cassette assemblage of an edit. The finished album cover seemed to strike people as something completely un-SST looking. That's yeah, well, it, de it definitely is reminiscent of like an avant-garde jazz album cover, for sure. Yeah, good point. It's kind of just like, almost like random geometric shapes maybe and stuff. Yeah. 
It's. I, uh, I saw a pair of binoculars. That's about all. <laughs> the only discernible thing I saw. And the front cover art is different than the back cover art too, right? It's yeah. two different pieces, or maybe it's connected and cut apart. Maybe. I think calling it a doodle is not really giving it enough credit. It works for the album. Totally. Curious that they like cut it down, though, and had like all the space around it with like the band name and stuff. Maybe they didn't. Yeah. Maybe they didn't want to have the band name over top of the art. I don't know. I think it would have been better maybe if it would have been the full cover though yeah maybe i like it i mean yeah it's how i know it what about the liner notes that he mentioned <laughs> yeah they're pretty out there richard Meltzer was like a kind of like a lester bangs kind of guy maybe like from that school of critics if you want to call him that yeah i think well, he, I, I think the dictators kind of were friends with him too for some reason i thought he was associated with blue oyster cult i think he maybe wrote some lyrics for them yeah, something like that. But he's a he's a rock critic for sure. That would explain why the Minutemen liked him so much because they were big BOC fans. Yeah, no, exactly. I think he wrote lyrics for like a fair amount of BOC songs, and that's probably why. And I think like Meltzer started providing some words, I think, to Watt because Watt wrote him as like a fan. I I seem to recall reading that somewhere. He might have wrote some lyrics for the Taters too. Don't quote me on that, but. Yeah. Andy wrote most of the lyrics, but... The best quote in Meltzer's liner notes here, though, my favorite, is the one where he goes, Joe Biza, and then it's colon. Only guitarist in North America who has eaten sound for breakfast since 1970. <laughs> a, a mean diet, acid laxative, is an easier eat. But hey, something happened that year. Look it up. <laughs> He's a pretty gnarly guitarist, man. Joe B., Yep. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. I mean, I never really appreciated it on Pagan Icons, but again, on the uh, Surviving You Always record, that was that was a face melter. Well, I'll tell you, spoiler alert, Ryan, I've been listening to We Became Snakes a lot since I was going to interview him for it. Joe, I'm totally obsessed with that album right now. Oh, right on. So, you'll know where I stand in two weeks, but it's such a killer album. Can't wait. But yeah, back to World Broken. Um, what about the rest of the uh, the album? Any other liner notes or anything that are worth noting? Well, it looks like, you know, there's a lot written inside by Jack. It's interesting, though, because it looks like some of the words are not attributed to Jack, like Ed Smith, Fred Torres, Joe Brewer. These are lyrics? Well... I mean, yes and no. I, I don't know. Like, for example, um, in the very last song, No Compromise Here, it, it still gets a lot of the lyrics, but it's a little jumbled. Like, Watt even has a whole, like, song-by-song song description. Hmm. And it's interesting. Like, there is, for the song Estuary... There are words that are attributed to Fred Torres written in here. You know, noisy, wide-eyed kids race around the Christmas trees and skis packed. And then Watt has got some words, and it says estuary. Mathematical discussion of piss smell is presented here. Actually, this was pre-birth before we donned tuxedos. 
The truth is made up of many fictions. Okay, so be it. So my take on what's in here is a lot of them are reminiscent and some are pretty close to Jack Brewer's vocals, like his poetry on it. And then I think Watt is just kind of spieling his own thoughts kind of on a song-by-song basis on the right-hand column of the lyric sheet. Oh, okay. And then it says um, it has one dedication. On the Verge of Finding is dedicated to Harvey Robert Kubernick. And the testimony is Alex Barishkin's photo. Yeah, is Alex Barishkin's. And then it says photos by Phil Proctor. So Harvey Kubernick we've talked about before. He... Yeah. I think he was also a critic. He's written a ton of books and stuff. I think he has a new one out about the doors actually, but he, I think, well, I'm pretty sure he was the guy that was running the spoken word shows that, uh, Rollins first started speaking at that Jack Brewer was for sure doing stuff at. I'm pretty sure he helped kind of curate some of the spoken word stuff that came out way later on new Alliance records. Yeah, I think that's right too. The photos on the inside are really hard to make out. They're all black and white and blurry. And the one picture just looks like people in a hallway wearing tuxedos. Another one that you can actually make out is a guy playing an upright bass wearing a tuxedo. And, th- and then another photo of a guy and a girl like looking through some books. And maybe it's some music notes, but it's really hard to tell what's going on in these photos. It's not saccharine trust, though. Is it? Uh, I don't jo- think Because so. Joe mentions in the interview that they rented tuxes for this. It's hard to tell. Maybe it is. It doesn't sound like an upright bass that Watt's playing, though. No, 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 no. That's the thing, right? Maybe he played it for a couple songs and you don't know it. But I don't does know. Does he that play doesn't... that? Have you, have you, does he do that on anything that you can think Maybe. of? Maybe. It does. I mean, I don't know. It's really hard to tell if that's Watt on bass there. I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me, though. I mean, Baizo mentioned that Jack had, you know, a bunch of stuff written out, right? And there's, right. there's a big book by someone flipping through it, so maybe it's Jack looking through his words. Do you want to uh, talk about the tracks? Yeah, sure. Walk me through them. Side A, Worm's Quest. I didn't write a ton of notes on these songs, but I liked Worm's Quest. It's got great guitar. He's using some cool effects on his guitar. Yep, I have Biza Shreds, Watt Shreds, reminds me of Watt Solo and Firehose. Yep. Watt's, Watt's playing. Uh, second song, Just Think. I didn't write anything for that one. Some of these songs on side two are really short. And side, or side <laughs> one, sorry. Side, side, one. Two, side two has some longer songs. I noticed that. This one fades in, and it's kind of a repetitive drone, mm-hmm. and it is pretty short. Uh, Merciful Mother. Jack Brewer is awesome on this one. This is the one where he's going, you can't revive him. (laughs) And Watt is slapping and popping. Yeah, that's what I put. Watt's finger popping on this is pure Watt. Yeah. So in the, in the liner notes, right? Uh, This is, this is one that looks pretty close to what's on the, uh, on the album. You know, merciful mother. Yeah. Just a minute, dear. In just a minute, dear. And then it's going, um. You can't revive him, so at least see him off with a smile. Yeah. Okay. Estuary. I put Joe Beiser rips it up on this one. He's playing through a wah. Yeah. And I just, I wrote, 
fire hose again. <laughs> Another thing I wrote about this one, I saw this documentary, I think it was, I don't, it, this was a long time ago, it was either on Miles Davis or on uh, that boxer on the tribute to Jack Johnson, you know, the album he did. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was kind of about both of them, actually. And I remember this part that's always stuck with me every time I listen to that that Miles Davis Davis tribute to Jack Johnson album where the like it's a jazz critic or something and he's talking about how the way Miles plays I can't remember the name of the songs but there's basically two songs on that album side A and side B and on side A he's kind of making these jabbing sounds with his horn and during this documentary they kind of synced it up with like some fights like Jack Johnson fighting oh yeah And, uh, it's kind of stuck with me every time I hear that album. It's kind of what I think about. And I kind of put, wrote that, uh, I thought Joe Biza was kind of doing, channeling that a little bit in this song. Ah, like, I I know those dudes kind of like you hear about Greg Ginn, you know, trying to emulate say Ornette Coleman and stuff like that on the guitar a little bit. So, you know, I guess what I'm saying is. I think maybe guys like Ginn and Joe Biza were maybe more influenced by wind instruments than they were other guitarists, maybe, in a sense. Horn players, yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. All right, hail our web. That's just a little 40-second deal. Shredding. Yeah. Lots of shredding. In the sandbox. In this sandbox, sorry. More shredding, that's what I wrote down. Yeah, I didn't have anything for that one. Uh, the last song inside a two Samuel chapter four, I looked up that, <laughs> so I Googled that passage or whatever you call them in the Bible. Yeah. It's, he's channeling some religious vibes there for sure. Yeah. F- as far as I can tell, uh, it's about these two dudes bringing the head of like Ishbot, I think is the guy's name to King David, uh, to kind of like kiss his ass. But it pissed him off that they did that. They, they, they brought this guy's head to him. And uh, so he cut off their hands and feet, and then he, like, killed them. <laughs> <laughs> and Jack Brewer rules on this song. Yeah. Lots of wah-wah, too, right? Yeah. I thought that one, this one built up pretty good. Good side, uh, good one to Ed's side, uh, Aeon. Yeah. I, I just want to say again, like, I don't want to take anything away from the playing on this album. And I mean, all the players are insane. And I, I was going to say, like, Joe Biza says something in the interview about the drummer, kind of like wanting to, you know, play to the other drummers, but I don't think he does. Like, I think he, I think he's jamming along with the band. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he's not overplaying. But having said all that about the instrument instrumentation, I don't think we would be talking about this album the way we are if it wasn't for uh, Jack Brewer. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I agree that he's really strong on this record, but I really got into, uh, the rhythm section in particular on this one. I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from it. I know you're not. I know you're not. And, and, and I agree that Jack is on point, but I mean, I guess what you're saying is like, would this album be as listenable without Jack on it? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's hard to say. Hard to say. I mean, I really liked it as is. And I guess to your point, part of what I'm going to do 
when I go back and listen to it again is I'm going to try and sync up the songs with these liner notes a bit more closely. And that's all Jack. Yeah. I just, I thought it was a good time to, to reiterate that since I kind of feel like Jack Brewer rules on this. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Flip the record over the testimony. It's more of a vibe Uh, vibe to me. That one. Yeah. Slow jam with uh, Brewer with some kind of breathy echo vocals, atmospheric. I thought it was cool. Yep. Second track on side two, Words Left Unspoken. It starts with just Jack, and then it sounds almost like that second part is maybe spliced in from another another jam that they did later or something. Yeah, there is kind of a slow jam outro that is spliced in there, but it is like a confession in priest rap, hey? Okay, I missed that. Fred presented himself to Joseph is the next track. What would you think of that one? Funky. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the fourth track, On the Verge of Finding. I wrote, Jack Brewer uh, sounds like David Yao a few times, I noticed. Yeah, he sounds possessed. Yep. And uh, I like the way Joe Biza gives lots of space to the other instruments. Like, he's not overplaying. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it this one ends really abruptly too, right? Yeah. And then the last song, No Compromise Here. It's a pretty spazzy song. Great drumming here and throughout the whole thing. And this is the one, I think the last lyric on the album is, Now We Are World Broken. Yeah, that's where it's taken from. That's where the title comes from. I thought it was a good ending to the record too. I'm just looking through, like, I should have really taken a bit of extra time and listened to, uh, like, read along with these in here when I was listening to it. Well, you you can always do a spiel. Yeah, I'll have, I'll have to do some homework. You always seem to assign me some homework that I never follow up on. That's okay. I think I'm going to listen to this one again because I tell you, when I was listening to this one, I went back and listened to Pagan Icons and Surviving You Always because I wanted to just kind of let it sink in how different those three were. the progression? Are. Yeah. yeah. And now when when We Became Snakes is coming up, I'll be coming back to this one. So maybe you can ask for an update then. Well, you can hear why the SST dudes liked Saccharin Trust so much. Like, it oh, is yeah. right up their alley. And I mean, in that kind of quote that I read from Joe Carducci, where he says we didn't get them up to 5,000 sales, like he's talking about units, until 1986, yeah. he kind of compares them to the Meat Puppets, Minutemen, and Husker Du. I mean, they are, I would say, less accessible than all three of those bands. Yeah, I totally agree. So if they were if they were up to that many, that's that's pretty damn good, I would say. Yeah, but I bet you it's pretty low for an SST band of that era, except for maybe October Faction or something. Although October Faction probably sold because of who was on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm glad they put this out, and I can see why they did because you know, musically it fits right in, but also that that progression is there that all the all the bands seem to have. Yeah, no one on SST, at least so far, is repeating themselves. Not even once. No one. No. Love that. Do you want to do the ballot result? Well, let's just finish off the liner notes on the back. Oh, okay. Just in case. Says the concert was... You covered some of this in the interview with Joe. Concert was produced by John Chalou. Live sound by Barry Bernard. Says uh, you already mentioned... And, uh, well... Joe Carducci did in your in uh, the note from him, and then on the uh, 
maybe in the interview too, about how it was recorded at McCabe's Guitar Shop. It says, um, recorded by Tempo Sound. Yeah, so he makes it sound, well, he doesn't make it sound, he says there's a little recording studio two doors down and they just snaked the cables over. And he also, yeah. I'm not to repeat myself, but he also said Angst and DC3 recorded there, so we'll have to watch for those. Yeah, for sure. And I'm just checking, I actually only have a CD version of this, but on the CD it gives writing credits for all the songs. Just Think is credited to E. Smith buys a Cicero and Watt. That's different. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's the lyrics. That must be it because they are in the liner note too. Like Estuary is uh, credited to F. Torres, okay, and not uh, Brewer at all. <laughs> to Samuel, Chapter Four. Guess who's credited on that one? Biza, uh, Cicero, Watt, and the Bible. Samuel. Samuel. <laughs> there you go. Must be the must be the uh, the Bible, yeah. And then that's it. The rest are all kind of Brewer, Beiser, Cicero, Watt. Well, I'll well, tell you. I like I said. Spoiler alert! I'm loving Saccharin Trust right now, especially We Became Snakes. Can't wait to get to like Universal Congress of. <laughs> I've listened to some Universal Congress of. It's pretty. Uh, it's it's pretty darn good actually. Yeah, can't wait. That's that's a ways away though. I am ready for the ballot result. Ballot result. Lay it on me, Ryan. I actually really like No Compromise here, but I feel like you got so deep into uh, Jack's poetry that I should let you pick. Uh, well, I liked Merciful Mother. I really like his lyrics on that one, but uh, I like the whole. I like the whole thing as a whole. It's more of a. It's more of a whole. You know what I mean? I guess it's a good. Yeah. It's it, you know, it's forty minutes, roughly. It's not too long. I could just listen to the whole thing. Yeah, but you have to pick one, man. Well, I, I don't care. We can do yours. No compromise here? Sure. Yes. How's that for compromise? I love compromise when I win. <laughs> Ryan, what's next week? Tom Tricoli's dog. Man, we're getting into some good stuff. Can't wait. We've got an interview with Tom Tricoli, too, so come on back for that. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.